listening to Labor Wave. Today on Labor Wave, we speak with Shane Burley, a writer and filmmaker based in Portland, Oregon. He's the author of Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It, which is available at akpress.org. And he's written articles on labor and anti-fascism, among other topics, for Jacobin Magazine, Alternate, In These Times, Labor Notes, Roar, and Think Progress, among others. His article published on January 28, 2019 for Think Progress, titled, These Burgerville Employees Organized the First Official Fast Food Labor Union in the Country, serves as the focus of our following conversation. We discuss the accomplishments and victories and strategies employed by the Burgerville Workers Union, the first official fast food workers union in the entire United States, and what their strategies and their victories might mean for the broader labor movement in the United States. We also got to dig a little deeper into the current political economy of late capitalism and its erosion of workers' identity under these structures of capital domination, and got to pick Shane's brain a little bit about where he sees the labor movement heading and its prospects for revitalization. Labor Wave is brought to you from Corvallis, Oregon, on all volunteer labor. And as always, we only play the music of John Dwyer and his bands like Damage Bug and the OCs because Mr. John Dwyer gave us express permission to use his music without copyright so long as we don't, quote, veer to the scary right, which we will never do. Please help us get more listeners and spread these great conversations that we get to have by following us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash laborwave. You can also listen to us at SoundCloud at soundcloud.com backslash laborwave. Send us an email telling us like what you would like to hear on these episodes or any guests that you might recommend that we reach out to at laborwavenews at gmail.com. Without further ado, we bring you this episode and we hope you enjoy the show. So your recent article for Think Progress uh, provided a short review on the now officially recognized fast food workers union, the Burgerville Workers Union. And it's a really good article laying down some of the methods and techniques used by the workers to organize their first fast food union in the country. I just wanted to get started for our listeners with a quick snapshot and summary of like the accomplishments so far for the Burgerville Workers Union and what's happened. And maybe a bit of a timeline for that period of time, too. The Burgerville Workers Union launched their campaign publicly about two years ago, a little over two years now. Uh, but they've been working on it for, you know, probably a little over a year before that. So we're talking about three plus years deep. Um, and basically, they didn't do what people kind of normally assume a union campaign would do, which is you organize workers immediately to file for an NLRB, a National Labor Relations Board election. But instead, they decided to just organize workers around issues. And so they went after really common issues, scheduling, um, obviously making demands of higher wages because they don't have a living wage there, um, going after uh, bullying managers, um, discrimination on the job, eventually retaliation. I'm basically doing a whole program of organizing around issues together and going from worker to worker, shop to shop that way. 
Um, and so they were able to create a critical mass. So that over the last, um, I guess it would be about nine months now, they've been able to start filing for NLRB elections where they started to have some density and those elections went well. Um, and while Burgerville really pushed back on the union very hard, they were able, because of that real groundwork over that two year span of being public, um, to basically build relationships and make that the foundation of the union. So when management came down with some anti-union uh, propaganda and things like that, they already had a base of, of collective action. There. Yeah, and three years for a union campaign really in the grand scheme of things isn't very long. So they've been able to accomplish this in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, yeah. And with no money. And I think that's a really big key thing. No paid staffers coming in, um, no large international propping this up. Um, and we've seen really large major labor unions trying to organize fast food and not really getting it quite right. And so I guess the question came up for me was why was the large internationals with millions of dollars behind them not able to do it? And why was a bunch of, frankly, young people in Portland able to do it? Um, and I think there's something really instructive for the rest of the labor movement because what they really did was sort of like not go the 21st century union model. Instead, they went like the 19th century union model of like a union is just workers who see a problem and figure out a solution together um, and create that organization. And that permanent organization can do a lot of different things. It can file for an NLRB election and bargain with the boss in a legal capacity. It can also just uh, do collective action around a specific issue like a worker being fired. Um, and so them not having, for example, high costs of having lots of staff around and those things um, actually makes it kind of a cheaper, easier thing to run in a lot of ways. And by using a lot of community support, by having a lot of goodwill with the community, they're able to bring a lot of community labor in there too. So people are helping out with things and they're coming to actions and things like that. Um, one of the things that I guess sparked the idea was that they had an action um, for, it's mentioned in the article, for National Cheeseburger Day, and it's happened on, I think, a Tuesday. So it's just a random Tuesday and they didn't publicize it. They sort of like went person to person and invited people. Had about 40, 50 people there in the middle of the day. Like, and I don't know about you, but I've been around major labor unions that could not pull that with massive like, you know, internet like advertising. They couldn't get 50 people out there. So why was this able to do it? And it's because they did something really foundational. They built a base over time and they branded it and they used specific language and they communicated why this union was valuable to the rest of the community. Um, and a lot of ways, largely, it isn't, it's not that they're not capable of it, but it's not really built into like the cost-benefit model all the time. I think it's interesting, too, what you say about how they're kind of using older models of organizing, like going to the 19th or 20th century model as opposed to the 21st century model. Because mm -hmm. one of the things with the Burgerville Workers Union is that they have been participating and affiliating with the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. I want to know more about your thoughts about why is this IWW model that they're kind of using working in today's political economy and historical context? Like, are we just simply going back to work conditions of the early 20th century and late 19th century? Is that why this is working? I think that's part of it. Yeah. I, I, so I think, you know, one of the things is the IWW formed as a militant labor union when essentially unions were illegal for the most part. Um, and with a kind of unionism they were doing, was just crushed summarily by the bosses. And so they created a model that wasn't based on kind of legal mechanisms, but instead just on collective action around those sorts of things. So they never really trusted union contracts that are legally um, recognized by the federal government, never really trusted letting the uh, boss control a due system. 
never really trusted things like no strike clauses, which are concessions that are often made um, in union contracts through negotiating. So the IWW was created as a model before a lot of the things we kind of know unions to be now are, which are basically legal concessions that were made in the first half of the 20th century. So when the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act happened, it really was a concession to stave off labor. You know, there's a lot of people that think that 20, 30, 40 years, if that those concessions had been given, labor quite literally could have dismantled parts of the government. Um, you know, we're talking about an era when strikes actually helped overthrow governments. And so there's a lot at stake. Uh, and I think it's like Chomsky that would always say that a strike leads to a sit-down strike, and the next step from a sit-down strike is when the workers kick out the bosses and run it themselves. I don't think they wanted that to happen. And so I think there was a lot of a lot of impulse from capital to concede certain things. They didn't want strikes constantly shutting things down. But what happened over the course of neoliberalism is that they kind of forgot that those were concessions and started to piece away those things. So the IWR never really founded themselves on those concessions when most major labor unions did. So as those concessions start to disappear, it doesn't really change the IWW that much. Um, so there's a really advantage to that. And so I think when large labor unions are scrambling to redefine themselves in an era that's much less legally friendly to the things that they've been, have been kind of foundational to them, you have to look at what has been there before and new things as well, but you can't, you're going to have to think outside that, that narrow framework because it's not going to, it may not exist at all in 20 or 30 years. Going back to this converse, this question about why are the larger unions and the mainstream labor movement unsuccessful in trying to organize fast food workers unions? So to get a little bit more of that context as to why, maybe we could talk about some of the obstacles that were in front of Burgerville workers and what they had to deal with yeah. um, to form their union in the first place. I mean, the really big one is high turnover because it's considered a transient workforce. Um, and... I guess I don't even want to say traditional labor unions, but labor unions of our recent memory are, have a really tough time with short-term employees um, because the model of a collective bargaining agreement and the way benefits work and things like that, what it often makes more sense for long-term careered employees and working-class jobs. So the idea was if someone's going to stay at a factory for 40 years, we'll make that factory a good job and they'll stay there. But that's not happening with fast food. And so if you build up a base, let's say, you know, you got 10 workers in the workplace and they're really effective. Half of those won't be there in three months. At least that's the thinking on it. And I think like when you're thinking about these different workplaces, you find that to be a real challenge because you have to have density over a period of time to actually do that. Um, and so I think they just, they find that challenging. And what Burgerville did was, I mean, create like these really bonds between workers where they were able to kind of create a social space that people could go in and out of to a degree, but also made people want to stay there because they were a little bit more supported. And so while they may have liked working at the job and there might have been some, some benefits to working at Burgerville versus other places, that support came in there, um, which frankly is probably good for Burgerville in terms of worker retention. Um, I think the other thing is that people are pretty atomized in those places. Um, and so that's actually where I think the Burgerville Workers Union really uh, finds success in that they refuse to allow people to just be numbers. And it's about faces and names and, and human beings and going after that. Um, one thing that I think is really challenging is that we really, I don't know if demonize is the right word, but we really kind of shit on fast food workers uh, culturally. I mean, they're, we talk about them in really kind of aberrant ways. And um, because of that, workers often won't identify as workers in the job, but they won't say like they'll, you know, um, I, you know, I, I, I organize around 5 to 15. Um, 
at one point. And like, there was really common to say like, well, you know, I'm not going to stay here. So why would I do that? You know, I have no intention of staying here. I'm not a fast food worker. I'm just working at fast food. Um, and so Burgerville really had the Burgerville workers union had a real public message of like, no, we are, we are fast food workers. We're important parts of the community. It's okay that we're fast food workers. We're proud of the work we do. Uh, and I think allowing that to happen, which is something we should do in every workplace. Um, I think that, that helped with one of the obstacles too. And I think, you know, again, like when, when large labor unions, and this isn't even really a, this isn't a, like a shot at them at all. It's just that there's a lot of cost associated with these sorts of things and it's expensive to do this over time. And so it's hard to look at it and figure out how to make it work uh, within budgets, especially as budgets start to, to shrink and the costs are still there. One of our earlier conversations on labor way, we got to speak with Bill Fletcher Jr. And one of the things that he highlighted was how, uh, the self-identity of workers today is a lot different than it has been in the past historically, where you could predict that a worker would be within an industry for a large amount of time, identify as, say, an auto worker or something like that. Today, particularly with millennials and Gen Zers, I think they're being called, there's a tendency to leave job to job, and there's a lack of kind of affiliation and identity with that job. So it sounds like the burger workers had to deal with this too. I think I think one thing to get at too is that and 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 one of the organizers, uh, Lou Brennan, mentions this when I'm talking to him. Um, it's basically that that's why they don't organize a workplace; they organize the workers in the workplace. And so, with the IWW, they want to work organize workers across all industries. You know, they have sublocals for whatever industry. And if you're a member, a lot of times people are like I'm an IWW member. I joined not because I was organizing a particular workplace, but under the idea that we should be organizing all the time. And so. The idea is that you get people thinking about organizing. They take that kind of uh, that ambition to organize into every workplace they go into. And I think, again, that's also a really good model. And then maybe that identity is formed out of being a perpetual union member and not just I'm a worker in this place, but I'm entering into every workplace, figuring out how I can make it better by organizing. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I wanted to like discuss a little more in detail is this this quote in your article from Lewis Brennan that they organize the worker, not the workplace. Mm-hmm. How does that stand in contrast to like the stand, the other models of unionism that are practiced by larger unions? Yeah, so I mean, generally, again, like we were talking about, people's the most encounter people usually have with the union is they go to a job not for the union, but because that's their career path or because they need work of some sort, and it happens to have a union, therefore they become a union member. And whether or not they like that, that's the interaction. It's very, very rare that someone organized their workplace, and it's even rarer that they were like a very active participant. And what the the model instead says is that the union is really only in as much as you do the union. The union is a thing you do. It's not a thing you get. It's not like you pay dues and you receive a service. It doesn't have, it's not how it works in the IWW. You pay dues because you want to see this thing be successful because it's a thing you're doing. So you're participating and you're invested in it. And so when you, in the kind of other model of having a union in your workplace, if you leave that workplace, you leave the union. Um, you may have less participation in the union. This is what they used to call a service model, uh, where like you pay dues and you get service back. Like I get, you know, support if I'm having an issue through a grievance procedure or I have a set contract so I know what my pay scale is. And a lot of unions, a lot of major unions are, are actually rejecting that model in general because it's, it's seen kind of ineffective and that organizing should be the foundation. But I think the IWW and, and, and other projects take it a step further and say that like it's going to have to be the foundation of that. And so anytime you're in a workplace, you have a choice about what you're actually going to do. There's no set prescription for what the union will look like. It has to be kind of built on exactly how you're going to handle those situations. And any collective action, therefore, that workers have is the union. 
Well, that's really interesting to kind of jump to this idea of a union as a contract, which is what I think it tends to be the predominant model today, is that larger unions typically do, like you said earlier, kind of start with a contract campaign and winning that formal recognition to negotiate for collective bargaining. But the Burnville Workers Union started saying, we don't need the state to recognize us as a union to be able to behave like a union. How how much of a shift in uh, union identity is that? And how good of a strategy for Burgerville has that been to not insist on a contract in the beginning? Well, I think it's quite possible they would have lost any kind of uh, union election or a contract campaign, even if they won the union election, if it happened two years ago. They really had to have a base. So a union election is hard. All of the rules are stacked against you. The National Labor Relations Board does not set rules in favor of the union. It's very much in favor of management. Management has a lot of leeway to fight a union, which is why NLRB elections don't go unions' ways a lot of a lot of times. Um, and then once you do win a union election, a contract is also incredibly difficult, um, and it requires a lot. And there's a lot of things that like uh, a boss can do to invalidate elections, to, to stop contracts from happening, and those sorts of things. And so if your entire model of organizing is based on winning those particular things that basically have lots of legal maneuvering that expensive lawyers can do, then you're not necessarily getting anywhere. You're not guaranteed to get anywhere. Um, but with Burgerville, on the other hand, they basically didn't make that was the first thing. The first thing was this one particular issue. Let's support this one coworker. Let's see how that goes. Let's let's do that action. Let's talk to these people and see if we can um, get this sort of collective action in support of, uh, of these issues like scheduling. Um, let's make that. And let's do a series of victories, show the value of coming together, um, show what the results are to people that have never actually engaged in that before. It creates a certain amount of confidence in collective action, which I think just we're not raised with a lot of idea that collective action could be the way that we solve problems in our lives. Um, and so it shows that to people. Um, and it builds up that base so that when you do take those sorts of things that have a legal aspect to it, uh, you have a better chance of winning. And I think with Burger specifically, um, the visibility that they were able to get on there by doing a very kind of open public campaign that was colorful, that communicated well, that used social media really, really, really well. Um, like, God, I know social media managers making 100000 a year that could have done it this well. Um, and so I think by doing it that way, it made it harder for Burgerville to then hire union-busting firms that would crush them, um, to file these you know uh, ridiculous lawsuits and things like that, that that sometimes happen in elections. So I think all of that has kind of helped with that. And I think in an era where we see collective bargaining rights, so the rights of the contract model uh, being openly under attack or have been gone for a long time, like in public sector and places like uh, West Virginia, Texas, Wisconsin, um, they're essentially uh, providing a model for how they can start to go after those workplace issues. It doesn't just have to be you know, lobbying and, and those sorts of efforts like a lot of those public sector unions do, but instead we can just talk about how you work, do workplace organizing without just relying on legal mechanisms. So I think that's in a way, just a, a window to some of the options that are on the way forward. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the tactics they used without a contract to win some gains on the job. So what strategies and tactics have been successful for Burgerville Workers Union folks? Yeah, so I think uh, public picket lines that um, basically force uh, consumers, um, patrons of Burgerville to make a choice publicly 
um, about whether or not they're going to cross the picket line, whether or not they're going to uh, go in there, spend money, even though workers are talking about how they're being treated. Um, and also uh, the boycott that goes along with that. I think that creates a real public accountability um, and it makes people really answer to that. Um, I remember when organizing around wage theft campaigns, you know, doing the same thing of saying like, hey, you know what's going on there? Are you still walking in? And that makes people really take a, a, like an inventory of like what they support. And I think by presenting the case really clearly and making that choice available for people, a, a large portion of people choose to support the workers. Um, even in tough situations. And so I think that's been really, really effective. Um, they went to a lot of um, basically suppliers for Burgerville, talked to the workers there, not just management. Some of those workers are union members, so they're able to communicate about the union issue. Um, so that puts a certain amount of internal pressure. So like now Burgerville's getting it from all angles. They're getting it from their suppliers. Hey, what's going on with this? Our workers aren't happy now too. Um, I think... Uh, uh, getting other unions to give support. So the IWW is very, very small. And I think when uh, Burgerville management and what I've heard sort of, and this has been a little bit more secondhand that when they first looked at the IWW, they were like, this isn't a real thing. We don't need to take this seriously. All they're, they're talking about capitalism and revolution on the homepage, whatever. This is just some Portland stuff. But when really large uh, unions came, uh, Oregon AFL-CIO, um, really large public sector unions that are very influential in state politics. Um, that I think said like, oh, well, these these workers are being supported. So they did a really good job of getting other workers involved through that mechanism. Um, they did a really good job at making the boycott effective. And that's a very difficult thing to do because boycotts are almost never effective and they very much, it very much was in this case. Um, because what they did was they made it a cultural cachet a certain segment of Portland that would be part of their base is no longer going to be for a very specific reason, and they'll hold on to that. Um, so, for example, like if I was going to go to fast food, it probably would have been Burgerville, but like I'm specifically not doing that for a reason. It's part of my like identity in the city now, and I think that was actually given to a lot of people. Um, uh, I think allowing no worker to be singled out is a very effective thing that all unions can do, and they did it very well here. So, uh, I mean, workplaces want to use divide and conquer tactics on workers, so make this bad worker is making you look bad, this bad worker did this bad thing, and let's separate them from all the good workers, and they didn't let, allow that to happen. Workers really came to support. Uh, one thing that I think got a lot of buy-in was they did a really unique thing that I didn't see covered very much is that they did a benefits program where the benefits program was for union members. So like a lot of times when you join a union, you get the benefits negotiated in your contract. And sometimes you get like extra benefits. This is some extra stuff that's nice, like cheaper car insurance or something. But they did their version of it, which was like, we will volunteer, members will volunteer to support other members and giving them like a certain number hours of childcare in a month. This isn't like money, but it's just like this. When you're a union member, you want this to be available. So you volunteer a little bit of your time and people get a little bit of your time. Um, things helping with ride sharing, stuff like that. So I think it's a really unique way. It's more like a mutual aid program as a version of a benefits program. So I think that gave a lot of buy-in. Um, and then again, like workers come out and support each other when they really value each other. And that comes out in a way that like just the reliance on a union mechanism just doesn't replicate. You have to have workers that really care about each other. And that's built by the, by developing those strong bonds. And they just did that for years at this point. And something else that your article really highlights is how Burgerville corporates public relations image of being progressive and like forward thinking for organic and local for fast food 
was actually something that the workers could use against them in terms of creative tactics and even this uh, not allowing Burgerville corporate to claim victories that the union actually accomplished. Could you explain a little bit more about how they were able to actually wield corporate's words against them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Burgerville stands out in Oregon because it it's a very Oregon kind of brand. You know, they use natural ingredients. They uh, try and talk about the, how they're a local company. This is an area that values organic food and, and localism, whatever people think that means. And that's really what makes them stand out from larger fast food chains. Um, their food's supposed to be a little bit better, maybe a little bit more expensive, but it's worth it, you know. Um, and they basically called the question on that and made them, I guess what's an old Alinsky line, it made them play by their own rules. So if they were going to brand themselves as progressive, the least progressive thing someone can do is bust their workers' union, just period. So calling them on that, they don't then have the cultural cachet that made their brand meaningful. That's a really big hit to their brand. Um, and so requiring them to do that put them on the run all over the place. I mean, they couldn't publicly denounce the union like some places do without or unabashedly. That's part of like making them kind of uh, work in plain daylight. Um, they would then, once the union election took place, the basically their corporate office put out like one of these kind of kitschy videos talking about how like, hey, this is a, a monumental moment for, for Burgerville and together we're gonna you know, chart a path forward. And so then the workers, the Burgerville Workers Union put out a video with the exact same format saying, um, we didn't work together. You tried to bust the union for years and we fought back and then we won. Um, it's a reminder that you're not gonna be able to re, um, re-co-op the language and say like, oh, this was all about coordinated uh, development of the company. Nope. You fought workers won. And that's the really key point here is that this wasn't about collaborating with the boss. It wasn't about um, you know, sharing and finding a best way forward. It was about workers gaining power in the workplace and fighting for their interests and having the support of the community to do that. And that won. And so that was really important about reframing that. Um, and as Burgerville goes forward, there's a certain push that they're always going to have because they're so based in Oregon. And it was organiz- Oregon organizations that came out to support Burgerville workers. And they can't alienate those people. For our listeners that maybe haven't seen it, I'd really highly recommend looking at that original Burgerville corporate video, like celebrating the union formation and then Burgerville's response because it's hilarious. It's really well done. Like, I don't know how they were able to do it in just a couple hours time and immediately counter their statement, but extremely impressive. Um, and I appreciate that coming from an organizing background myself because the bosses always try to claim our victories. Mm-hmm. But on that note, They won this election, and they've kind of moved into the strategy of establishing what you refer to as like micro units. Can you explain a little bit more about what this strategy looks like, like what that what that means in practice and and how they're moving forward today? Yeah, so they're going shop to shop. So they're going one specific restaurant at a time rather than trying to go for one large unit of all Burgerville workers at once, which is a much harder thing to organize on a very shoestring budget. But instead, we're working really hard to build a base in one particular location, see if that wins, then go into the next one. And they've won all the elections, all three that they've had so far doing this. Uh, but if they were forced into uh, some legal maneuvering by corporate to, to, to pull an election on everyone, they just like wouldn't be there yet. And so it's more effective actually to go shop to shop, which is why it's a little bit harder for large labor unions to replicate that because the cost of going shop to shop is really hard to recoup 
organizationally. But if there's not really a cost associated with it in the same way, basically Burgerville workers are pulling together a little bit of money and they pay for everything together, it's not the same kind of expense. And so that's why I think the shop-to-shop model is effective, but also somewhat prohibitive for large unions to do unless they find a way of making that work. But I think that's actually what's going to gain the success. And they're not rushing it. You know, if workers at that particular workplace think it's time to do that, then they'll do it. If not, they'll continue working around issues because they've already built the base and the union already exists. And so now there's three shops that have formal union recognition, which means that they are now enabled to go into collective bargaining. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, they're in bargaining now. And what does that mean practically when the IWW and the Burgerville Workers Union has already explicitly said, we will not sign away our strike rights? Like, how does that work and get reconciled in this legal era of contractualism and like the no strike cause kind of being like mandated almost for unions? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's hard to say at this point. So a no strike clause basically says that workers aren't allowed to go on strike while the contract is in effect and that strikes are essentially prohibited until the moment that a contract expires and a new contract is having stalled negotiations on being created. Um, so generally what we understand a strikes to be in the modern era is in between contracts. Um, but that's not traditionally what strikes are. The strike is withholding of labor. So a worker sees their power in the workplace by refusing to work and therefore the workplace can't function. And this is, puts a lot of pressure on, on, on management to, to concede the worker demands. Um, and the IWW, as an organization that doesn't found itself just on the collective bargaining agreement and the concessions of legal labor, um, sees the strike as really foundational to what a union is. And so they focus on that ability of workers to gain power by withholding labor. And so um, in the constitution of the IWW, it says that they won't uh, accept contracts uh, with a no-strike clause. No-strike clauses are generally pretty, pretty universal in union contracts today. Um, and so this is going to be a real tough point on bargaining, and I'm not sure how it's going to play out, but it is a sticking point for the union. Um, and so I think, you know, what it, if, if they're successful, I think it will set a really positive precedent for starting to revisit um, how useful no-strike clauses are, because generally any time that a no-strike clause is put in, it, it, it can really weaken the power of uh, the union to bargain on really high-level issues. Thinking about Burgerville Workers Union's story, their successes, the challenges of organizing in the fast food industry, I kind of want to just pick your brain a little bit about what are the implications of their successes in unionizing today. Um, so I've seen some of these micro units being employed by like undergraduate student worker unions, and that seems like maybe it's gaining some traction. Burgerville has kind of laid down a model. What do you think this means for the broader labor movement? What lessons can we actually start learning from the Burgerville workers themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a really big period of discovery of what a union can be like in a new environment and what it can be like today. And, you know, you'll see lots of these um, union leaders talking about innovative things. And they're not always something that I would necessarily celebrate. Uh, we're, you know, uh, management, labor partnerships, uh, NGO style advocacy, 
um, very vague benefits programs. Um, and that's not what a Libre Union is founded on. But I am really excited about the idea of doing something completely new. And so I think, in a way, what the IWW and the Burger Workers Union does, and a lot of projects and what they call alt-labor do this, is the alternative labor movement stuff, is stripping organizing down to its bare essentials and figuring out how to use it in a new context. And I think that's what we're seeing now. So what we see now is the, the kind of um, the fractured workplaces that we exist in now. People change workplaces more. They move more. They do gig economies, uh, precarious work, freelancing. All these sorts of things don't have the ability to have a union contract in the way they traditionally have. But if we strip organizing down to the bare essentials and we um, find ways of approaching these issues using that real key organizing spirit, and we can do it in all kinds of different ways. And I think we open up the door to how we can basically establish a labor movement for a completely different kind of economy. It's about maintaining the principles and the essentials, though. We have to really figure out what those essential key parts are. And I don't think in the end it's a grievance procedure in the contract necessarily, but it really is like that solidarity between workers uh, using collective action to solve problems. And so I think there's implications for all kinds of workplaces, um, keeping people in the labor movement. There's lots of implications there. I think uh, going after uh, precarious work and freelance, there's a lot of options there. You know, I am, um, one of the things that I do, I organize as a freelance writer um, is uh, very recently, um, with the Writers Guild, a freelancer organizing project where they just talk about issues and how to go after them. It's really that simple. What are the issues people have? What are possible solutions for them? And so I think in a way, we're trying to figure out how to apply those principles all across the board. And if we can create a good structure for that, even better. Um, but I think right now we have to be in that period where we figure out exactly what it means to have that worker power, what the essential components of are, and how we can port that to a whole range of different situations. Now, I wanted to ask this question. I don't imagine that you really have much of a prediction or uh, answer for it, but do you think that this means today that the IWW is coming back? Like, are we seeing the reemergence of the IWW or other forms of like more militant unionism? And are sure. they going to stick around? I mean, the IWW has grown. Um, I think that the IWW, this is only one of a few things. I mean, so the IWW's Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, organizing people inside prisons around prison issues. Um, I think that's really important. The IWW is also organizing freelance writers, um, and a lot of people are joining um, around those issues. Um, the General Defense Committee, which is the IWW kind of a community partnership wing that goes after anti-oppression issues, issues that might affect union members, uh, particularly going after protecting people from, from fascist organizations, white nationalist organizations in neighborhoods, but also housing issues, other kinds of stuff. The IWW has opened up in a lot of ways to what a union can do in different contexts. And uh, while that gets criticized as sort of like a postmodern union, I actually think we're in postmodern times and that's really useful because it's about just figuring out those bare essentials. So like um, uh, people incarcerated are workers. They perform work in that workplace um, and they're in marginalized situations. And that collective action, that union still can be powerful. Tenants unions are still powerful unions of people coming together, figuring out their key role in that institution and finding power there. And so I think that the IWW is really set to be able to do that. And whether or not it does kind of blow up in that way, I think is up to how successful those organizing efforts are. And it's also not just the IWW. I think lots of unions actually are looking at ways of trying to, to to reattach themselves to the militant tactics at work. So teachers unions are the best example. 
in a lot of places where the recent future strikes happened, they were illegal. They essentially had no strike clauses. They were set in law rather than a contract because in a lot of those states, it's illegal, illegal to collectively bargain. So they went on strike anyway. And I think they, they looked at what these legal restraints were, realized that they weren't going to get anywhere by just following the, the letter there and instead going with the old school tactics of worker power. And so I think right now, we're all in a period of looking at what the key principles are and how can they be employed now because the all the things that we were given, all the things we want, are being slowly whittled away and we can't rely on them. Absolutely. Well, as a way of kind of concluding, I, I really want to know what your thoughts are about the future of the labor movement, both in the United States and internationally, what it needs to accomplish in order to be revitalized and really like empower workers again and and maybe some things that you're looking at right now is like the way forward. It's, I know it's a big question. It's a big question. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are higher paid than me thinking about it right now. But I think, I think what's really important, and again, I think we talked about this, you know, repeatedly. It's like, instead of just looking at how to maintain the institutions as they are, we have to figure out how to maintain what the institutions are meant to prop up. I mean, the institution of the union is meant to really only prop up the collective action of the workers. And that's what we need to really look at preserving. Um, and so as we go forward, it has to be about that fundamental core and also realizing what that fundamental power is. And it's not just legislative power and it's not just public advocacy and it's not just liberal like lobbying or, um, or uh, like activism, but it's a real key um, issue of a worker in a workplace and the power that they can take back and they can switch the power on the boss because workers produce the wealth while bosses reap them. It's an old line, but it's very true. We need to fundamentally build all of our organizing practices on that principle. And so if, if unions are going to maintain in the 21st century, they have to be able to not just reshape to the workplace, but keep that, that entire core and just port it to different places. And also we need to really start communicating why that's important. And I think we kind of lost that in a lot of ways. But people are realizing that. I mean, the, our workplaces are less hospitable than they were 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and they weren't nice then. So like people are kind of realizing where they are now, and we need to connect them with that. We need to connect them with that fundamental principle of worker power as being the solution to that workplace problem. When neoliberalism really atomizes people about their problems and make them the individual problems, we need to remember that these are about collective issues that we can solve together. Um, that's a really vague answer to a very big problem because like actually finding the way to do that is going to be really complicated. And as we see increased automation, as we see the shrinking in a lot of ways of the economy, it's become even more important that we do that. And that collective action also needs to extend beyond the workplace. It needs to be looking at the housing crisis that's hitting every single urban area in the country. Um, in a lot of ways, it's, it's how we need to look at climate catastrophe, collective action, finding our place in that, and exactly where we have that trigger point that when we work together, we can entirely switch the situation. That's what we need to found it on. And so I think as labor is going forward, they need to every situation, every new workplace, every new kind of workplace situation that's coming up, they need to look exactly what is the worker's role in that? How do they build actual power in there? And how can we mobilize that? Well, with that, I really appreciate the conversation. Shane Burley, I hope to have you on Labor Wave again soon and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thanks for having me on.